0: We are in a revolution, but it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense.
1: It's that sound again, tractors, the voice of Charles Walters and that happy little strum, the squeak of my chair. It all means we are launching into a second season of Tractor Town podcast by Acres USA, the podcast for farmers who care about the earth. My name is Ryan Slaylaw, and I'm lucky enough to be your host for a second season. Uh, We have a lot in store this year. We're going to talk about eco-farming tactics and methods, if I can say it, of course. We're going to go back in time and listen to an age-old discussion that still applies today on farming and ecology. Uh, We're going to talk with surveyors about the loss of farmland and what you and I can do about it. Uh, Our goal for this year is to make sure we are speaking with young farmers to better understand how they see themselves fitting into the future of agriculture and to share their ideas. They have a lot of them about what we can do and how we can do it better. Uh, Anyway, we're so excited and we hope you are too. Uh, Today's episode, like our very first episode, this is episode 14, just for the record starts with the voice of Charles Walters. Charles started Acres USA in 1971 as a vehicle to report on the challenges facing small farms and to help give farmers a resource and reference and, and ideas for good, healthy ecological growing, especially when all of our large-scale methods were being taken over with toxic methods. Uh, in today's talk, we are re-airing one from our conference in 1993. Uh, Charles will start us by introducing us to a guy named Neil Kinsey, who at the time was new to the Acres USA family, new-ish, and working on his legendary book, Hands-On Agronomy. The book has sold thousands of copies since then, to farmers and growers all over the world, and Neil's become uh, truly one of the founding fathers of Acres and is on our Mount Rushmore. Uh, He speaks around the world and uh, uh, speaks at our events as well. Uh, And this is a great representation of uh, what Neil uh, talks about almost every week. Uh, for his job. So, in this talk again from 1993, Neil speaks on the premises of his book, Hands-On Agronomy. Uh, we hope you enjoy it, and thank you so much for joining us again from a, for another season of Tractor Time. Again, this is Acres USA, and we're the voice of eco-agriculture. Uh, listen and enjoy it. Thanks.
0: For the last 12 months, Neil Kinsey and I have been working on a monumental text called. Neil Kinsey's Hands-On Agronomy. Neil is a student of the old Brookside system and also of Dr. William A. Albrecht whose principles he largely relies on. Most of the advice that he will give in that book and from this podium is not the advice you will get from the land-grant colleges extension or even the USDA. For some reason, that escapes our explanation. Brilliant work has been done in the institutions of the United States, and that work has been buried and put away, and false premises are being issued out as current fare to the American farmer. In his territory, which includes a lot of the United States and some of Europe, Neil Kinsey tries to rectify this problem. He's from Charleston, Missouri, and all I can say is that what he'll present to you is landmark stuff. When we have the book out early next year, avail yourself of it, and then you can start tying together what Kinsey says, what Scow says, what Albrecht says, what Anderson says, and what some of these other classic texts that we're getting together are saying by way of sound ecological agriculture. And with that, let's bring Neil Kinsey to the podium.
2: Good morning, everyone. Before we start, I'd like to ask one question, and if you can answer yes to that question, I hope you'll stand up. And that is, how many of you were here for the first, very first Acres Conference? If you'd please stand up. Just stand up. Every one of you. Anyone that was here, First Acres Conference. I I hope some of you look to see those people because they've been coming here for 22 years. All of them. And there are several more that have been to most of them. But uh, 22 years, if, if you have an opportunity to talk to some of those people. You know, I was just a... A young person 22 years ago but I was able to attend the first acres conference here in Kansas City and when you sit out here and think about how many people have spoken from this podium and how many have come and gone it's a sad thing but it also is something to say it doesn't have to end as long as we have people like Chuck to keep it going and I hope it continues for another 22 years and even longer well, with that, I'd like to uh, begin by saying that in Charleston, Missouri, where I live, we're down in the river bottom country, and some people who live there refer lovingly to it as Swamp East Missouri, not Southeast Missouri. I've been known to call it that a few times myself. But, you know, we have a lot of fellows down there who still like to coon hunt. We still have some, some uh, forests and woodlands, but we have fellows that like to coon hunt, and I want to start out by just telling you about one of those fellows I find quite humorous. In the time of growing up, we had two kinds of coon dogs in our area, the really good coon dogs. One was called a red bone hound, the other a black and tan. For any of you coon hunters, you'll know what we're talking about. The red bones were a dark red, and black and tans were mostly black with a little bit of tan on them. Well, the fellows in this particular area happened to really like red bone hounds. And they bragged on how good their hounds were, and this newcomer to coon hunting came in and he had a black and tan, and he happened to stop at the local restaurant and was telling everyone about how he had this marvelous coon hound, probably one of the best you'd ever seen. Well, it was about this time of year, and when it gets frosty and so forth, that's time the coon hounds start running or they start to run the coon hounds, and it was just the right time. And so they said, we're going to take you up on that. You're going to have to prove how well this black and tan will do in amongst all our red bones. And so the first night came. They all went out, took their dogs, and the man turned his black and tan loose. And and a coon hunter can pick out his dog from one from the other, the way they sound. And you could hear that black and tan. He was out ahead of all the pack. And all these hunters began to look at one another, and they said, Well, you know, that dog's out ahead of everything. You think he might have something here? And all of a sudden, that coon hound quit barking. The others were still going, but that hound wasn't barking anymore. And the hunters began to laugh, and they said, Ah, that dog, he's already lost the track of that coon. you got a worthless hound. And he said, Shh, shh. Be quiet. He said, that dog's just running across posted land. (laughs) Well. (laughs) Chuck asked me today to take time and tell you about various uh, experiences from working with various farmers and so forth. More or less a hands-on type of an approach, which I'm more than glad to do. And I'd like to start out with an example in, well, let's put it this way. When I start working with a farmer, and those of you that have heard me speak before may have heard me say this, probably have. But when I start working with a farmer, I don't sit down and say, look, you have to do it this way, this way, and this way. But I ask him, what is your approach and what do you want to accomplish and how can I help you do that? Now, I may not say it in those words, but that's what I'm looking for. And about, oh, 12 years ago or so, I had occasion to be introduced from, to a man from Germany who owns some land here in the U.S. and has quite a lot of land in Germany. And he had problems on one of his farms here. And his business manager asked me if I would come and meet with him and go over some of his uh, farmland, walk over it with him, just to take a look at the land. We hadn't done any testing there, but to take a look at the land and see if I might have any comments to make to him. And we spent an entire afternoon walking over about 1,500 acres and, and pointing out various problem areas and so forth. And I, I could tell by the way the soil probed and by the way the soil looked and several different things if we, when I put on a Training program. Well, I tell people how you can tell this is happening, but you can determine whether magnesium is a problem in many soils just by the way the soil reacts uh, stickiness, hardness, how loose it is to, on the very top few inches. And I was expressing this to the man as we walked over, and I don't know, two or three hours. We came back to his offices on the farm, and he reaches into a file cabinet and pulls out a set of soil tests. And he hadn't said anything to me about this. Uh, He was a doctor. Since he owned a dental supply business, I thought perhaps he was a, a doctor of dentistry or something like that. Everyone called him doctor. But I didn't know anything of his history. And he pulls out these soil tests and sits down and looks at them. And those particular tests were from the University of Missouri. And he said, you know, I've owned this land all these years, and I've walked over it, and I've had various people come, and no one has ever told me that I have a magnesium problem. I've never heard of that before. And he said, then I pull out these soil tests, and I look at them, and every one of them, and he said, you know, the the land that's the best has the least amount. I mean, we could look at it and see it there. And the land that has the worst problems has the largest amount of magnesium, it's right here on the test. Why hasn't someone ever told me that before? Well, we worked together on that farm for about four years, and his yields continued to increase, but at that very first meeting, I asked him, well, what do do you uh, feel about, I said, there are some natural products that we can use to to work on your farms and so forth, and he said, oh. He said, Natural agriculture, environmental agriculture, I don't want a thing to do with it. And I said, well, I'm I'm curious why you feel that way. And he said, in my country, there are two different ways of looking at agriculture. One is the way the Greens Party looks at it. And the other is I'm afraid how I look at it because I'm what you would call on the conservative side. But he said, I don't want to be associated with environmental agriculture because I don't want to be associated with the Greens Party. Now, I don't know, there may be some people here that are associated with the Greens Party, and I'm not trying to say anything against that one way or the other. It's just that he said, some of the things they stand for, I don't. And so it may give the wrong impression. Well, you could say, why didn't you just look at him and say, well, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Well, I think there's a good lesson to be learned here. Two years ago, he had me come to Germany for the third or fourth time because after four years working with him in the U.S., he said, you have to come and do my farms in Germany. And when we analyzed his soils in Germany, he was killing his crops with too much phosphate and potassium. Actually, he some of some of the people in this audience and so many people in agriculture absolutely will not believe that you can kill your crops or kill the yield or the total production of your crops with too much phosphorus too much potassium he didn't he wouldn't have believed it over there had he not seen what we were doing in the US and he had exactly the opposite problem here he needed more over there he had too much but because of the Soil analysis which we use, and and you think about this, his farm manager on one of these farms had been the farm manager for 35 years and had grown up on the farm and worked for his father when his father owned all the farms. This man's close to retirement age, and he's going to hire this guy from the United States to come over and, and tell him how to farm the farm. And I said, look, if we're going to do that, the first thing that needs to be done is you have the farm managers pull the samples from the farms and send this them over here so that I've never seen USA, any of the land. The voice
1: of eco-agriculture. And, for more than 45 and then years, we'll the have, have the soils analyzed,
2: and I'll come back and sit USA down with you and the farm managers, and, and we'll go over every area not
1: knowing rely what it toxic looks like. Pesticides and toxic but herbicides. from the analysis of the soils, you know
2: that we can tell the farm manager, around the this is the areas that podcasts, produce well,
1: habits, these are the areas you have urban problems, or been farming for a lifetime. You and know, as, as a consequence, always more maybe we can r- win his soil confidence. life, gut health, and nutrient and mineral applications are changing the way we look at farm management, and the most important part, the future of our soil. At Acres USA, we are committed to finding the experts to teach you these methods and practices. Learn more at www.acresusa.com or by calling 1-800-355-5313. Folks outside the U.S. and Canada can call us at 970-392-4464. If your business would like to advertise or sponsor the Tractor Time podcast, spots are available. Contact us today to find out more, and thank you for listening to Tractor Time.
2: did that with all three of his farm managers and it took 3 days because I can't speak German and we'd have to do it two lines at a time. I'd tell them two lines and they'd ask the questions back and an interpreter which this fellow is an excellent interpreter. But at any rate they started following through and whatever whatever I told them they did it. Now the first year they only did it on a few acres but by the second year they were doing it on all the acres. And Last spring, he had a meeting when I was over there and invited about 60 different people involved in agriculture. And This man has several different people that come and consult on his farms. He has a, a consultant who tells him what to do with insects. He has a consultant who tells him about economics and how he compares with other farms. He has university people that come there. And I encourage that kind of thing. It isn't a matter that that you need one consultant. I'm not telling you that. I mean, if that's all you want, that's fine. If you've got a program that's working, that's fine. But many of the farms that I work on are in conjunction with other people. It's not by myself. At any rate, he had a man who told him what to do for his insect problems and for any kind of pests. Well, as he stood up to introduce us, he said... He said, I'm going to give the first comments, and he said, it'll probably take about a half an hour. And this man who said he was opposed to environmental agriculture, who would put on whatever we told him, if he could could find it, he'll use it, because I never told him it was environmental agriculture. And we never discussed it again. For ten years, it never came up. We never said a word. But, you know, he stood up before that group of agriculturalists, some prominent people from various areas of Germany, and he said, Since we have used this fertility program, and, well, number one, he started out and he said, We have set record yields in canola, or rapeseed, in wheat, in sugar beets. Record yields, some of those record yields are for the state of Lower Saxony, and in particular on the type of land they have. And he said, I'm not even talking about that we're making more yield today. He said, what I want to stress is the fertility aspects of our farm, because in eight years now we have not put on any phosphate or potassium. And our yields are the best we've ever made. Now if if the soil test call for phosphate or potassium, he would put it, he'd put it on. He does it on his farms over here because it's exactly the opposite. But then he went further. He said, I I want to talk about the fertility aspects because in the last four years, this fertility program has saved us one million dutch marks that we would have spent on fertilizer that we didn't need. And he said, I know we didn't need it because we're setting record yields. We've never made the kind of yields we're making now. But he said, that isn't the end of the story. We have virtually no weed problems in many of these soils. He said, we have the least amount of weed problems we've ever had. And we have the least amount of insect problems that we've ever had. And then he went on to expand on it. And here is what he calls his chemical consultant sitting beside him, the man who tells him what to spray when, and the man sitting there shaking his head, yes, that's right, that's right. And when he spoke, he said, we've been able to eliminate certain sprays. Since we put the copper on the wheat, we don't have the rust problems that we had. And he just started expanding on it. Well, what I wanted to say there is this man who was opposed to the idea of environmental agriculture is actually using it. But it wasn't sold to him on the basis of environmental agriculture. It was sold to him on the basis of results. And this is the approach I take with every farmer. I'm not going to stand up and say, look, you've got to do this or you've got to do that. I tell every client that I have, I'm the advisor and you're the manager. But I don't know if you can conceive of it, but I can't. And working with farmers, I have about 300 regular clients. And I can't conceive of one of those clients that if you could show them a better way to do it, they wouldn't do it. They want to know how to do it. It's just a matter of somebody has to show them the pathway. And maybe all of them don't learn at the same rate. It may take some... I have one client. It took him ten years from the time we started before he could actually afford to do what he needed to do to his land. But he took it a step at a time. One of the best clients I've had. In fact, he's the first client I ever had in the state of Missouri. Still a client today. But because of the economics of what his farm was producing, he had a very, very poor-producing sand farm, and he started to work to build it up. And ten years later, which was he started with me in 1973, and in 1983 was the first year that he ever could afford, because of his fertilizer budget and so forth, to do everything that was called for ten years before. But his crops got better every year. And as the crops kept improving, now when I say better every year, that doesn't mean every yield's better every year because you're going to naturally have the vagaries of weather that figure in. But at least, let's put it this way, his net income continued to increase. And if you start with the things you need most and supply those, finally that's not going to be the limiting factor anymore. Then you can go to the second and the third and the fourth. And with a detailed soil analysis, that's what you can do for a farmer. If he doesn't have the fertilizer budget to put it all on, you tell him, stop, where you're, whatever you're going to spend on fertilizer, spend that much and stop. Don't break yourself. What if you have a year when, when the hurricane comes through and blows all your cotton from one end of the farm to the other end, and it's all piled up on one end, like some of the farmers in Indiana? You can't predict those things. But if he doesn't spend any more on fertilizer than he intended to spend in the first place, You're not going to cause him to go broke, at least. I mean, unless he would have gone broke anyway. The point is, you can take a program like this and just go step by step and slowly improve over the years until finally you get to the place where you're doing everything you need to do. I don't have very many clients that it takes ten years to get there. But I have some clients that haven't made it yet. 82% of the farmers in a survey done in the state of Mississippi at a farm meeting said that they believed in soil testing, that farmers should soil test. But then when they turned it around and asked them how many, they asked those same people, do you soil test? It's easy to remember the figure because you just turn those numbers around. 82% said farmers should soil test, but only 28% did. Now, I realize a lot of people still do not trust a soil test. And in the training sessions that I give, I tell about a number of examples as to why people don't trust soil tests that they've come up and told me. Well, I don't think, I don't think uh, soil testing helps because this or that or something else. But there's not time to go into that today. I'll just say that soil tests will vary so much from one lab to another that as long as you don't try to put the interpretations from one lab on another lab's numbers, it'll work pretty well. But on the tests that we use, which really are the tests that uh, I was taught to use by Dr. William Albrecht, what we find is that an extremely light sandy soil requires a different combination of nutrients in order to perform than what we would call a medium type corn belt soil of Illinois versus what we call a real swampy type soil of southeast Missouri or into Arkansas in the swamps of Arkansas and and southeast Missouri because it varies with the amount of clay and humus and if you have sandy soil which is really loose and has a lot of aeration already and you try to use the same cation balance specifically calcium magnesium on that soil as you do on a heavy clay soil you'll get too much more air space in that sandy soil. And so a sandy soil requires about 20% saturation of magnesium and 60% calcium saturation. And the lower it goes in terms of the, the lower the, the colloidal clay and humus drops in that soil, the worse it gets. In other words, you have to go ahead even from, from there. But 60-20 on a, on a normal sand soil, would be what would be considered ideal, whereas on an extremely heavy Red River Valley, North Dakota soil, or an extremely heavy Central Arkansas swamp soil, 7010 would be better because the magnesium and the clay in there make it so tight you already have too much water, and when you put the calcium on at a higher rate, it will actually create more airspace in that soil. And that in a clay soil, our problem is getting enough airspace. In a sandy soil, our problem is decreasing the airspace. And calcium and magnesium is the key to doing that. Yes, sir? Can you relate that, the the sandy and the heavy soil, can you relate that to a cation? Yes, yes. Uh, Generally, below a cation exchange of six is considered sandy as far as what we're talking. Uh, we have some yellow clays in the Ozarks that actually will not have an exchange capacity of 6, and so even there, it's, it's a coarse clay and rather than a colloidal clay, and we have to use the same kind of figures that we do on sand. But basically, if you drop below an exchange capacity of 6, we're talking the 60-20. If you get above an exchange capacity of 35, we're talking 70-10. In between that, generally 68-12. Now, again, if you try to use this on another soil test, it doesn't necessarily correlate. I've seen soil tests that will tell the farmer you need 68% calcium and his neighbor down the road says you don't need 68, you need 80. And you know what? The one, one of my very best friends called me once and told me about that and he said, well, I've got a neighbor down the road and he raises better crops than I do and his calcium is 80% saturation and you tell me it ought to be 68. And he said, I'm, I don't know who to believe. And so I've used this example many times, probably here once or twice, but I encouraged him, go to the best producing soil you know of in the whole area and take two soil samples right side by side. In other words, get about five probes of soil out of that area and take five, put it in one bag, go right beside it, take five, and put it in the other bag. Don't try to mix them. Get separate ones and send it in and see how it comes back. The the soil analysis, he sent one to me, and we analyzed it, and it came out 68 exactly. He gave it to his neighbor who sent it into the lab that they used, and when it came back, it was 80% exactly. If he had taken our 68 and tried to get to 80, he would have been in trouble. Because believe me, I have so many people who have called me that have done it. I have uh, two brothers on the Ohio-Michigan line that heard that I could help people that had overlimed their soils. Their soybean yields were at 55 bushel. They and their dad became convinced they needed 80% calcium, but they were using a test like the one I use. They built it up to 80%, and their soybean yields dropped to below 30 bushels per acre, and they couldn't get them back. And it took five years to get that soil back where it needed to be. I have another client in southwest Missouri, and he has laying hens, and they supplement the feed with calcium. And he never thought about that he was going to overload the calcium in his soils by putting on layer manure. He had a 160-acre farm. He started putting layer manure on all his land and... Uh, I was doing work for some of his neighbors, and finally he and his sons called me and said, Would you check our soils? Something's happening. We can't even get, get good hay production anymore. And when we came in and analyzed it, that's exactly what he had done. He had used so much layer litter with all that available calcium in it that he had tied up his iron and many of the micronutrients, and the crops just wouldn't grow there. It took five years Again, and I, I don't say that it always does, but it took five years again working on that to get it back down. And the tragedy of it is his son lived three-quarters of a mile down the road and grew turkeys. Now, they don't put the calcium in the turkey feed, and so you don't build the calcium levels up the same. His son needed calcium, and he needed to be using the turkey litter. And so we got them to switch off. His son got the calcium he needed and the turkey litter started to work on, at least, bringing the calcium levels back down in his soil. The turkey litter along with sulfur. But, you know, in five years he didn't have any trouble knowing what the problem was. Many, many people that we work with who use manures don't think you can use too much. And you've heard me say it every year, and I'll say it from now on. I guess I'll say it from now on in every meeting like this. Because some of you people are killing yourselves if you have the concept that you can't use too much manure on your garden. All I'm saying is that no matter what nutrient you're talking about, when you get it too high something else that you need that's in that soil cannot anymore function. Dr. Andre Voisin is the foremost authority that I know of on it. He wrote a little book called Fertilizer Application, and I can't find it. Uh, It was published in England, but I can't find it anymore. I have a copy of it, uh, one of the researchers in Germany gave me a copy back in 1985, and if you ever get a chance to pick that little book up, be sure and do it. And if you ever find a supply of them, I'd like as many of them as I can get, because I'd like to give it to a lot of clients. But what he showed was, just like von Liebig says there is a law of the minimum, there is also what is called a law of the maximum. And maybe you've read it in some of his other books, but in that little book he tells what happens if you use too much nitrogen? What happens if you get too much phosphorus or potassium or calcium? And it doesn't have to be from manures, but the easiest way to overdo is from manures. Those soils in Germany were built up to the point, the, the soils that I was telling you are setting records. If you look at the micronutrient levels in those soils, there are the river bottom soils of the U.S. is 50% as rich. And these aren't river bottoms. These are sand hills and so forth. But those fields had the manures and so forth put back on them over the centuries. They had it put back to the point that it had released out too much phosphate and potassium in those soils. And the phosphorus was tying up zinc, and the potassium was tying up boron and manganese. And if you start stopping the... Here's the, here's the real thing, and that is, if you looked at the soil analysis, they had four and five times more manganese than the normal soil in the United States. It was not toxic. It wasn't killing the plants. And as a matter of fact, where the soils were in the right cation balance, that's where they had the highest yields of any fields. They set their records on the soils that had... If you study the textbooks in the U.S., it will tell you 200 parts per million manganese is enough to kill a crop. They had places where they had 250 parts per million manganese. Most of the soils we check in the United States have 50 or less. But with 250 parts per million manganese and an excessive potassium saturation, which translates into 10% Between the potassium and the sodium, and in some places they had 12 and 14 and 15 percent saturation potassium. The manganese couldn't get in, even though it was there. And as soon as we got them to stop putting on the potassium and the levels of potassium dropped, the manganese came back. It's there, just couldn't get in because sodium and potassium crowd out manganese if they have the opportunity, and an excess is what does it phosphorus crowds out zinc but do you know what on the other hand zinc crowds out phosphorus too if you get extremely high zinc levels the phosphate can't get in some areas of the country when you put on large amounts of manure the zinc level will go out the top and other areas of the country you could put manure on from now on and it doesn't seem to affect the zinc level at all the key has to do with the total amount of nutrients in a given soil. In southwest Missouri, fellows that put on turkey litter at the rate of three tons per acre for 10 years had me come in and check their land because they were afraid they had caused toxic conditions. In southeast Missouri, where we are, you put turkey or or boiler litter on for three years in a row, and some of the nutrient level will, will jump out the top to the point that you've already caused yourself a problem. Now, I'm not say, just saying they've caused a problem. The farmer knows because he starts seeing, well, something's happening to my crop. And the problem has to do with not just what you have in a soil test that shows available, but also the rest of that element that's there that's in forms that aren't in the proper form the plant can use. But when you put on the manures and composts and so forth, those manures and composts, will start releasing because of the encouragement to the microbial activity and the mild organic acids, will start releasing those. And, and I don't mean to scare anyone, but when I tell you that you can kill yourself from your own garden, if you like to grow a garden and live out of it, and, and I like to. I, I have an organic garden, and I've had it for as long as I've understood the principles. And as much as we can produce there, that's what we do. Because I just don't trust what I buy anymore. I mean I just can 't help it. The more I learn about what people are doing, the less I trust what comes out of the stores and I make a two hour presentation on food sometimes, and people come up and tell me afterward they they wish i hadn 't done it they don 't know what to go home and eat. <laughs> well, it does it gets that bad sometimes well i again i don 't want to all I want to stress is that if you use a lot of manures, then you 'd better be sure you you use enough limestone to balance it out. <clears throat> and if you there are some people who have gotten to the point that the limestone will not balance it out but you can tell it if you're doing it you can tell it because if you have a garden that the cucumbers are bitter or the radishes are bitter or the turnips are bitter or the squash is bitter you can know you're overdoing the phosphorus and the potassium most likely that's the key now i have so many people that i'll have them stop using Manures on their gardens. Now, I have others that, I mean, I'll get them, I'll say, use as much compost as you can. But if they're over, if they've overdone it, we'll say, stop using manures or compost or even cottonseed or alfalfa meal or whatever, soybean meal. Don't use protein meals, don't use compost, don't use manures. Because your phosphate and potassium is so high, it's already affecting your crops. I had a man down near Buffalo, Missouri, and they lived out of their gardens. He had several children, and the wife and the children really made a big garden. And he said, you know, it takes six rows of green beans just to get enough beans for us. And he said, used to, we raised two rows of green beans. That's all it took. After three years working with him and getting them to finally get enough confidence to quit putting manures on their garden, he got back to two rows of green beans, and it was too much. Because what they had done was they had stopped the manganese. The green beans looked good. When you go out and look at them, they looked good. They didn't show deficiencies. They just didn't produce the beans. But if you ran a tissue analysis of those green beans, they didn't have enough manganese. And if you don't have enough manganese, you're not going to get enough set. Well, all we did was have him quit that. But you see, here's the real drawback with most people that stop using manures and composts. And that is... They say, "Well, my garden doesn't look as good as it used to. I still need. I think I still need that manure and compost. We're wanting you to cut out the phosphate and the potash and anything that's in that nature, but you've got to do something to supply the nitrogen. Oh, your your garden's not going to be as good as it was on high yield, um, high nitrogen requiring crops. Now, if you can't use, if you can't use manure and you can't use compost and you shouldn't use protein meals." And you don't want to use commercial nitrogen, what are you gonna do? Well, there's only one solution that most most people in the whole world still don't understand, and that is you use the biologicals that stimulate the microbial processes in the soil. And it can be done, and it's very simple, it's not hard at all, it's too simple. Because you go out and spray three tenths of an ounce on a thousand square feet, and it seems like all you're doing is spraying water on. But it works. I'll tell you it works because I've used it since 1976. I don't put nitrogen on my sweet corn, and I don't put nitrogen on anything else in the garden. Now, I'll say that when I need a little phosphate or potash, which is seldom, I'll use some, uh, not, some soybean meal or alfalfa meal, It's the two that we use in our area. But I don't have to put that on my corn to get good sweet corn filled all the way out to the end. I'm only using that, I don't mean, that's not a bragging kind of a thing, I'm only using it to say, yes, it can be done, and it can be done in field crops. I have clients who have not used a pound of commercial nitrogen. One man I think of in particular has not used a pound of commercial nitrogen since 1978, and in the last six years he hasn't put on one ton of manure on all of his acreage. And he still raises the best corn in the whole area. Now. You can only do that if your soils are in the right shape, and I'll have a lot of clients I'd never even mention that to because they're not at that point yet. They couldn't do it if they tried. You have to go by what the nutrient levels are in that soil. Well, normally I follow right down the sheet, and I feel like I'm wandering a little bit here, but I just want to stress that without a soil test from that is run the way Dr. Albrecht taught me to read them. I can't tell you anything. I don't know anything as far as how to solve the problem, but with those numbers, the numbers don't lie. The real key is take and take a representative soil test and go from there and what I tell everybody is if you don't have confidence in a soil test, test your soil tester and that is I was at a I was at a an agronomy day meeting in illinois and there was a panel of four i happen to be on a panel of four and one of the men that was on that panel was the head of the extension for the university of illinois and one of the men in the audience asked can you use a soil test to uh, evaluate A various a a farm or a field or something like that can you actually use a soil test to evaluate your land the ability of it to produce and for some reason or other the moderator called on the fellow from Extension Department it wasn't one way or the other for whatever reason but anyway he maybe he got his hand up first but he said no soil test is soil test is just to give you a general indication and that's all Nobody can use a soil test and evaluate the land and the land's capability. Now, a lot of you out there already know that you can, but I, I couldn't sit there and just not say anything. I raised my hand and I said, well, I'll just have to say that we tell every client that we work with that we can pick out his best producing area and his worst producing area and anything basically in between by using a soil analysis. And we do. We do it all the time to win the farmer's confidence. And that's what I mean to you. If you don't trust soil tests, test your soil tester. And by that, ask them to use the soil test and tell you where you get your best production and where you get your worst. If they can't do that, that's not a very good situation for you to count on. Well, you won't get anybody to say that if they tell you all you need is pH, phosphate, and potash which is what was being talked about in the soil test in terms of the extension service, well, he answered correctly in terms of the test they use, But the test we use goes into a lot more detail than that. And we get down to the point where we'll tell you, you can grow rye on this field, but you can't grow barley. Or you can grow soybeans on this field, and they'll do well, but you can't grow grain sorghum, or vice versa. Never, ever having seen a crop grow there. And one man hired me to come in and test a farm before he bought it. He was going to buy it. After I checked it and told him what it needed, he backed away and didn't buy it. But in the meantime, I told him this farm will grow grain sorghum well, no problems. But if you try to grow soybeans there, the yields will falter every time. And he was amazed, and he rolled the chair back, and he said, See, there was nothing growing there when we went in to analyze the crops. It was during this season of the year, harvest was over, it had been worked in, you couldn't tell from the residues. But what happened was, he had extremely high sodium levels in relation to his potassium levels. Milo can stand it, but soybeans can't. And he said, you know, the owner of that farm told me that he could raise good grain sorghum, but he couldn't raise soybeans. And we just sat down and showed him and actually showed him the areas that would produce the best beans. You can do it time after time because the nutrient relationships are always there. And if it's grapes, if it's tobacco, if it's potatoes, if it's cotton, if it's trees, it still works. And it works no matter where you are because all it is is simple physics, simple, simple chemistry. And really when you get down to it and take care of the chemistry and the physics It's simple biology. It isn't nearly so tough as what it might seem. I I tell a lot of my clients, look, how many years have you used herbicides? Well, some of them all their life. I say, what we're talking about in terms of fertility is not nearly as hard to get the concepts across and grasp everything about it as it is to know all the requirements for all these herbicides and so forth. And it isn't. It's just that people start thinking it's difficult because we've got so many educated people that want to talk about it in terms that go up to the ceiling instead of just using common, ordinary, everyday terms. Now, I at one time might have thought that was a disadvantage, but I don't know a lot of those big words, so I have to try to put it down in simple words, and it works out real well because I can explain it, and it seems like most of the farmers can understand it, or gardeners, or whoever. Now I'm talking a lot here today about farmers. But I want you to know that I work with a tremendous amount of people on lawns and gardens. And if you live out of your garden and somebody, if I work with someone that lives out of the garden, let's put it that way, I feel like that's where I make the the most contribution of any. Because as as, uh, Mr. Tharp showed yesterday in his presentation, it isn't just affecting you and I, it's affecting our children and our grandchildren according to what we eat when our children are born or our grandchildren or whatever. And if you can make a contribution there, that's what we're trying to do because we go through the plants and the animals back to the people, isn't it? Well, I was going to talk about what can be learned from a soil test. I'll only say a few things about that. And, you know, I can't help it. I don't try to inquire to find out what they say in your area when I sit down to tell you how to use Uh, the test that we're working with I can't help what the authorities say if you want to put that in quotes that's fine I can't help what the authorities say and I don't want to know what they say until after we're finished I have uh, some clients in Southern California and on one particular farm that they purchased they purchased a hundred acre farm they raise herbs for the fresh market these people don't use any pesticides never have They want to do it as natural as possible, Uh, but they bought this farm and it would, well, I'll back up a little bit. First of all, they bought 30 acres of the farm, and they said, we had terrible problems until we found out through a greenhouse that I was working with and a friend of theirs, and he said, if you can't get that to produce, we had problems in our greenhouses, send the samples to Missouri. Well here's California, I mean, what's this sending samples to Missouri? But anyhow, this was a this was a it was a good friend of his, and he did it. And they listed on every sample problem, can't nothing grows, nothing grows well, uh, so forth. Well, when the results were analyzed and we looked at it, they had severe calcium deficiencies everywhere. Severe, not extreme, uh, not not just. Normal but severe calcium deficiencies. But their pHs were high because they had extreme amounts of magnesium and extreme amounts of potassium. And they needed anywhere from one to three tons of calcitic limestone per acre, calcium carbonate. Well, we had them put the, I called them, told them what they needed. Now, this was a new concept to these people. They've never heard of this. And so they went and talked to their fertilizer dealer. And he said, what are you going to put three tons of limestone on? Well, we got this 28 acres out here. We're going to lime. Oh, he said, that's the biggest mistake you can ever use. If you're going to, if you're going to do that, you need to put on gypsum. Use three or four tons of gypsum. That's, he went to the extension people. They told him the same thing. The university told him the same thing. They went to a soil testing lab they'd been used. They told him the same thing. He called me back and said, how about if we use gypsum? And I said, if you use gypsum on that farm, you'll turn it to the point in three years you'll be able to absolutely grow nothing on it. Well, who do you believe? He believed his friend that we'd helped in the greenhouses. He put on, uh, he put on the limestone. And I was out there last February. They bought another 70 acres that adjoins that 30. It's like a garden spot. And they said, every farmer that ever tried to farm this 100 acres said, why you want to buy that 70 acres? Now, they grow flowers and vegetables and all types of crops in there. And he said, everybody said, don't buy that. You can't grow anything on it anyway. That 70 acres was worse than the 30. In two years' time, it looked like a garden. And the farm manager said, Neil, we'll have people pull in here in their pickup trucks And he said, a farmer may get out that's 60 or 70 years old. And he said, I don't mean it's happened once or twice. It's happened many times. And he'll come up and say, I want to talk to the farm manager. And he said, time after time, they just shake my hand and say, all the years I've driven by here, I have never seen a crop on this. Whatever you've done is a marvelous thing. The the point is this. Everybody out there tells the farmer to do the wrong thing because they don't look at the analysis. And basically, client after client after client, I have to tell, if you don't put on calcium carbonate, you can use gypsum in the end, but you have to get your calcium levels high enough or the sulfur in the gypsum is going to drive out the nutrients you need to sustain your crops. Well, Chuck has signaled me that time is up. I appreciate being here. I would like to say for any of you who... Uh, I don't have very many cards left, but uh, Otto Hallier at the Bioform booth has a little stack of pamphlets that has my name and address on it, and I'm always interested in hearing from you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for listening to Acres USA's Tractor Time podcast today. We really appreciate you listening and your support. Stay tuned for future episodes all year and log on to www.ecofarmingdaily.com, our blog site, to find all of the past podcasts. You can also find these on iTunes and all sorts of different ways uh, out on the web. Search for Tractor Time Podcast by Acres USA. Uh, thanks again for listening and enjoy the rest of your week. Bye-bye.